On September 26, 1960, the first nationally televised presidential debate occurred between the then Vice President Richard Nixon and the U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. It was such a new occurrence that 70 million Americans watched live. Coming into the debate, Nixon was leading with a considerable lead. But when Nixon arrived that day, he looked ill. He'd had a knee injury. Uh, he uh, refused to wear makeup recommended uh, for being on television. While, as we know, Senator Kennedy was this dashing, handsome, well-spoken man with a strange New England accent. But as the debate went along and they went back and forth, there were a number of things that played out before everyone, but there was a clearly distinct impression given from being able to see and watch these potential presidents. And there was much more that played out in the race. Coming in, Nixon was the leader. On the way out, Kennedy was very close, if not leading himself, and eventually Kennedy would win. In this very first opportunity for people to see a, a potential candidate in this way, impression, outward impression, really mattered. Does this look like someone we'd want to be president? Not sure how that plays out today as they scream at each other in debates. I'm not sure it's quite the same thing. But, but on that day, at least, there was something about this outward appearance it carried a lot of weight. And in fact, that still is the case so often in our society where we so easily, so often focus primarily on outward appearance in most areas of life. We assess people by their outward charisma and appearance rather than the character of who they are. That seems to be the default setting for most and I think for most of us as well. And today in our text, though, we'll see that God has another way, another way of assessing, another way of thinking about those who would lead. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel 16. In the Bible's near you, you can find 1 Samuel 16 on page 238, page 238. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible so you can see the text right in front of you. You can follow along as we work our way through this chapter if you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in chapter 16. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. I'll mention those throughout our time as we work through this chapter. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table. There's a sign there that says free Bibles. So following the service, please stop by, grab one of those Bibles, and take it with you as our gift to you today. So today we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. After today, we'll pause our series and we'll return to it in the new year. Across this fall, we've been seeing how the people of Israel, God's people, eventually began to long for a king. And what they said is they wanted a king like the nations around them, who would lead like other nations are led, who will fight like other nations fight. And so they wanted an impressive leader. God had warned them, though, of what those kings are like, what they demand of their people. People were persistent in their demand, so God finally then gave them a king named Saul. And we've seen across the weeks the ups and the downs of Saul's life, but we've also seen a clear downward spiral across the weeks of Saul's own character, his heart, as he again and again disobeyed the Lord. 
Then last week we saw Saul's continued disobedience as he did not, he would not listen to and obey all the Lord's word. And we were told last week that his reign now was coming to an end. As Samuel the prophet had told Saul in 1528, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So we pick it up today, 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesse called him Benadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who was with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. 
So Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departed from him. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Trust the king whom God has provided, who is the king we truly need. Trust the king whom God has provided, who is the king we truly need. And we'll see our passage in these three different scenes. So first we'll see a king provided. Second, we'll see a king identified. And then third, a new king is enlisted. So a new king enlisted will be our, our last. New king provided, a new king identified, a new king enlisted. So first, a new king provided in verses one through five. We see in verse one that Samuel had been grieving over Saul for some time. We're not sure how much time passes between the end of 15 when the pronouncement is made that Saul is losing his kingship and the beginning of 16. But it seems that Saul, Saul's sin has weighed heavy upon Samuel, as well as Saul's failure as king. And it would make sense that Samuel had some mixed feelings about Saul. We've seen originally when God's people had said they wanted a king, that Samuel had taken it personally as a judgment against him. Over time, it would, it would appear that some affection had grown up between Samuel and Saul, and yet also Samuel had had to repeatedly confront Saul for his sin. And now this king of Samuel's people has fallen. He's losing his reign. And Samuel mourns that. There's an appropriateness for God's people, for us, to mourn when people fall in sin, to grieve the sins of others, to grieve when leaders of God's people fall. That's a friend, it's worth considering. How do we respond to the destructive reality of sin in the lives of others? Does it appropriately sober us to think that, but, but by the grace of God, that could be me? Do we feel the weight of it or is it possible that sometimes we find satisfaction when others fall? Do we take some sort of strange enjoyment that others fall in sin, making us feel better about ourselves? Samuel's been grieving for some time, but now a new mission is given him from the Lord. The Lord tells him, fill his horn with oil and go and anoint a new king. Among Jesse the Bethlehemite, among his sons, there would be a new king. When the people of Israel had said, give us a king who would lead us and, and fight like the other kings, the, the Lord had warned them what this king would do, that this king would take and take and take, that this king would not walk in God's ways. And Saul had been a king very much in accord with the kings around, displaying more of the values and standards of neighboring nations than the values and standards of his God. The Lord had given them the king they wanted, with the intention that as they would see this failure, that would help them to see that, that they don't really need a king like what they want. They, they need a king as the one God would provide. They need a different kind of king. Saul was the king they wanted, and they believed they needed, but he was not the one who would ultimately be able to save them. God had a better way for them. He was now going to provide for them the king they truly needed. And then through his line, eventually, would provide the Savior they needed as well. 
Now, this king, we're told in the text, would be the, the one the Lord himself was providing. Samuel asks a logistical question. How, how can this be if Saul, who's still the king, still reigning, if he hears that I'm going to anoint someone else as the king, this is not going to end well. Saul will kill me if he knows I've gone to anoint another king. For sadly now, Saul, the one anointed as God's king, is living in opposition to God's ways. Lord then tells Samuel to take a heifer along for a sacrifice and simply explain if someone asks that he's come to bring this sacrifice. So that's what Samuel did. When he arrives in Bethlehem, the elders of the city come to him and they're concerned. They're a little bit nervous. Why is Samuel here? They say, are you coming peaceably? And the reason is because Samuel played this role as prophet. And at times he had to come and pronounce judgment. Uh, to, to call people to repent of sin. So, so it wasn't, I guess, apparently a, a good thing if Samuel showed up in town. And so they go, oh, what have we done? Has he come to pronounce judgment on us? But Samuel explains, no, I've come peaceably for this sacrifice. So, so consecrate yourselves and come for this sacrifice. As well as Jesse and his sons were to come and consecrate themselves as well. We're seeing that the Lord is providing for his people the king that they need. What they truly need in accordance with his ways and in accordance with his timing. The Lord is faithful to his people. He's always faithful to his people. Circumstances often seem to say otherwise. We've seen that in 1 Samuel. It would seem to say that God is not faithful, but God is always faithful. No matter what circumstances in the moment may say, he's always faithful to his people. I think the same is true for us. If we've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and King, our Lord is always faithfully at work in our lives. The Lord faithfully provides for us what we truly need and in accordance with his ways and his timing. That's not always obvious. And like God's people then, God's timing seemingly is almost always slower than at least what we would prefer. Slower than our designs. But friends, the Lord is faithful. He is good. His timing for us, for you, friend, is best. So they were going to face the question, would they trust the Lord's provision and we too face that question. Will we trust God's provision for us? Will you trust God's provision for you? Will you trust his timing? And especially when his timing seems so painfully slow. Will you trust that the Lord is faithful even when circumstances seem to say that he's not? Will we keep trusting him? So we see the king is provided. But then second, we see a new king is identified in verses 6 through 13. We see verse 16 that Jesse and his sons came to Samuel. And when Samuel sees the oldest, Eliab, he thought to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Eliab must have been impressive looking, strong, tall, but notice what the Lord said to Samuel. Look down at verse 7. He says, do not look on his appearance 
or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the natural, the very normal way of looking is to look at the outward appearance of a person. Their height, their physical strength, their outward attractiveness or beauty. And if you're looking for a king for the people, you would tend to think you want the most impressive looking one you can find. The tallest, the strongest, the most handsome one. But the Lord sees differently. And we're told the Lord sees, he knows the heart. The Lord can see the heart in a way that no one else can. And the Lord values the state of the heart much more than the stature of the body. So it wasn't the first son, Eliab. But they begin to work their way through the sons, and it's not this one. It's not that one. Again and again and again. So they go through all the sons that are there. So Samuel finally asks, are, are these all of your sons? Are there any more sons left? Jesse replies, well, they're still the youngest. Jesse still doesn't even name his name, but he says he's keeping the sheep. So he wasn't invited. He's the one keeping the sheep, the youngest, the smallest. And so Samuel says, well, wait, send for this other son and bring him. And so when this youngest son, David, arrives, the Lord told Samuel, arise, anoint him for this is he. So Samuel anoints David in the midst of his brothers. So of all Jesse's sons, the youngest was chosen. The one who at least at that moment would have been the least impressive. He was such an afterthought that when Jesse was told, bring all your sons, he thought, well, it doesn't mean all our sons. Someone's got to keep the sheep, so we'll leave the youngest one with the sheep. He didn't even get an invite. If you remember the anointing of King Saul further back in the book, we see that David is the complete opposite. For when we were introduced to Saul, we were told he's from a wealthy family. And he was more handsome and taller than anyone in Israel. This impressive figure. Saul was outwardly notable. If anyone ever fit the outward profile of a leader, a king, it was Saul. David here was the youngest and presumably, at least at the time, the smallest. We'd also, though, seen another side of Saul when we met him. When we first met Saul, he'd been sent on a task for his family owned some donkeys and the donkeys had gone astray. And so Saul had been sent to go and find these donkeys. And if you remember the story, Saul was unable to find them. Eventually, he gave up, went back home. The donkeys were found, but not found by Saul. So though he was this impressive figure, he was a failure as a shepherd. But when we're introduced to David here, we find him faithfully shepherding the family's flock. All the other brothers invited, David is left. Here we find David about the task of shepherding. So Saul was a failing shepherd, Young David was already a faithful shepherd. And this would foreshadow the reign of each of them as king. The king God provides is so very different from the kings of other nations. Outwardly unimpressive, but a humble, true, and faithful shepherd. 
It's interesting, though, as we're, we're told the Lord looks at the heart, not at outward appearance. Then we're also told of David, though, he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. So this points to his boyish good looks. And so we think, well, which is it? Does outward appearance not matter, or does it matter? What's going on here? This is given to us to help us not misunderstand. Yes, the Lord sees and knows the heart, and character is much more valuable than outward appearance. But by that, we should not begin to think that to be physically attractive is, is somehow sinful in and of itself, or, or it's a curse. So David both has a heart, but also has this outward appearance. But the outward appearance is never to be the measure. It's not to be despised in us or despised in others, but, but not to be the measure of who a person is. We're told in verse 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. We'd previously seen the spirit come upon Saul when he was anointed as king. We see in verse 14 that the spirit of God had left Saul. As the kingdom was going to be taken away from him, the spirit would no longer be with Saul. And now the spirit was with David. As a reminder, we saw this earlier, this was a unique presence and empowerment of the spirit that God gave to specific people in a moment of time among his people. So he had given it to, uh, to prophets, to judges, and now to his king. The spirit is with Saul, but now the spirit has left Saul, and now the spirit is with David. This is not the same experience we see now since Christ with the Holy Spirit. Where we're told in the scriptures that all who repent and trust in Jesus are now indwelt by the spirit. And the Spirit is always with us and in us. And that's good news for every single Christian, that Christ, by the Spirit, dwells in us, keeping, sustaining, and empowering us. So then Samuel leaves David and his family, and we see that David has been anointed the next king that God has provided for his people. But notice there was no coronation, because he's now the anointed king, but he's not the reigning king. There is still another king who's reigning. Saul still has all the power and authority. Saul doesn't even know what's happened with David. Only apparently David's brothers, his family, know of this. So God has now identified the king that he's provided. We ourselves will also have to guard against what the people of Israel had to guard against. That is overvaluing the appearance, the impression of others and overvaluing our own outward appearance, our own impression on others. Let's bring one, if you were honest today, do you find yourself regularly overly concerned with the, your outward appearance, with the impression that you make on others? Now, the alternative, to be clear, is not to have zero interest in that, it is to give much more attention to our hearts than to our appearance. For, for outward beauty, attractiveness certainly fades. It's part of life in this world. But the inward beauty, inward character lasts. And across the scriptures, we're told that is a worthwhile, wise investment to cultivate inner attractiveness, much more so than outward. So friend, in what ways are you overvaluing outward appearance? And is it possible there are ways that you're neglecting the cultivation of character? What would it look like, friend, for you to consider what, what is it you are setting your mind upon, which then begins to shape 
your character? What are you filling your heart with day to day? And where are we seeking to fight against sin? That we might grow in grace and godliness and maturity. And unless we intentionally work to look past outward appearance, the impression of others, we will often make choices of who we want in our lives as as leaders of a, a company or leaders of a nation or leaders of a church based upon this outward impression above all else. Leads to disastrous choices, and it certainly leads to disastrous choices in the church. We must above all else pursue godliness in those we would seek to have lead over outward appearance. So we want to seek to grow in our ability to discern hearts. Now, we certainly can't see like God does. We do want to, in time, try to value character, seek to know others in a way that we might be able to know that as well. We have to fight this temptation in every area of life where our society says, typically, bigger is always better. Worldly power is to be desired above all. Outward charisma is more important than godly character. We're also prone to want something that's outwardly impressive when it comes to our very view of the world, our worldview. For none of us really desire to be mocked. We don't want a worldview that others around us will scoff at. So it's tempting to, to want a worldview that will, that will just fit in nicely in our city, in our society. So, so most in our city would, would think the idea of the miraculous to be unacceptable or impossible. And so that can begin to shape our desire of a worldview. Nothing supernatural in our worldview because that just doesn't fit our world. Those around us don't want to believe in something called sin often. They they don't want to be called a sinner. They don't want to have the thought of that. And so it's easy to think, I I don't want a worldview that would use that idea. And many around us don't want to trust in the idea that, that one dies on a cross. And especially that he was raised from the dead in a miraculous way. And so we discount that as a viable worldview. Friend, I wonder in your own life, you believe in Jesus, have you found a growing temptation to, to loosen your hold on that? It's not easy when those around us think that those ideas that we hold to are unreasonable. So we see a new king identified. And then third, we see a new king enlisted. A new king enlisted in verses 14 through 23. We see verse 14, as I mentioned, that the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and we see a harmful spirit from the Lord now torments him. I want to be mindful here that Saul was the anointed king. This is not just some average Israelite. He had been especially anointed by God. Above all people should have been faithfully following his God, and yet he hasn't. He's walked in ongoing disobedience. Now, a form of judgment on him is this harmful spirit. We don't know much about it, except what we're told is that the spirit is from the Lord and that it tormented him. And we're best served at times like this not to devote ourselves to to a great deal of speculation of exactly what's going on here, but simply choose to trust what God's word says. 
We admit there's, we don't understand all that's happening here, but the word is clear. This is a spirit from the Lord who is tormenting Saul. Evidently, Saul's servants, they, they see this as well. So however it's impacting Saul's behavior, they think that something must be done about this. And so they suggest, can we find someone who plays the lyre very well? And when that plays, that, that, that will in some way help the situation. Saul will feel better. And it'll actually turn out to be some wisdom in this, but unfortunately, it's only treating symptoms. And what Saul needed was not simply symptoms to be treated, but what he needed was a repentant heart to turn back to God. Yet, unfortunately, we'll see Saul resist that. So Saul thought this was a good plan, so he tells his, his servants, go and find someone who can do this for us. And, and one of the servants says, I know someone. He's David, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And he says of David, he's, he's skillful in playing. He's a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. It's really quite the description. So Saul sends to Jesse for him. And so David came and entered into Saul's service. He's enlisted to work for Saul. David is faithful in his work so that Saul grows in affection for him. He grows in trust that eventually David serves as Saul's armor bearer. And we're told that when the spirit was upon Saul, David would play the lyre and Saul would be refreshed. The harmful spirit would leave him. And what's going on here? We don't know all that's going on, but, but it would make sense. We know of David that he's the great psalmist. So many of the psalms in the book of Psalms were written by David. So what sort of songs was David likely playing? It would seem as a very reasonable assumption that he's probably playing songs that are praise of God, singing these psalms that perhaps some of them we might even know. Here's what David was praising God in the midst of Saul's we're not told how much time had passed from David being anointed to this happening. We do see that this young man, David, is becoming really quite the Renaissance man. And we think about it, it's, it's really a shocking turn of events. Anointed as king, not yet coronated. Now of all places, he has a job under the king who he knows he's supposed to replace. Chapters ahead, we'll see David's faithful and godly character as he serves under this king who he will replace. Now, David won't be sinless, but he will be extraordinarily faithful to Saul. He'll be patient to wait for God's timing. He doesn't try to plot an overthrow so that he can ascend to the throne. So David, the new king, faithfully served under this evil king who, in fact, we'll see, will actually try to kill David. David was not a threat to Saul. Instead, in fact, David would be a means of grace to Saul. As we watch David's story play out, we're being connected to a bigger story. We don't even see that throughout the book of 1 Samuel, always trying to connect it to the bigger story of God's work in history and in the world. And in here, in David's story, we see connections that both go backwards in the history of God's people and that go forward beyond. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, there's a character in the book of Genesis that you may have already noted some similarities. It's a young man by the name of Joseph. Significant similarities between David and Joseph or both of them were young sons who were found shepherding the flock. 
Both of them described as being handsome. They're both wise and understanding. Both of them prosper under the courts of the leaders of their given nations, under ungodly leaders, and yet they prosper and grow in authority and influence. Joseph would be the one that God would work through to preserve his people through a famine. David the king, who God would work through to preserve his people as well. And friends, here again, we see the beauty and the breadth of God's working in history and of God's word. It's one of the many reasons that we, as we said last week, we want to read all the Bible, including the Old Testament. And we miss so much if we disconnect from the Old Testament. Reaches back to this story and see how David is a continuation of that. But also this story of David connects forward. We'll see that through David's line, another king would come, and this king would be the one perfect king, the eternal king, Jesus. And where would this eternal king come as he broke into this world? Where would he come, this obscure little town alluded to again and again in our text, and that is the little town Bethlehem. As Matthew 2 quotes from Micah 5, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And it is this coming, as you know, that we celebrate at the Advent season, this coming near of the perfect eternal king. And in the coming of Jesus into the world, this pattern that we see begin with David, we saw in Joseph continues as well. As Jesus was born in this obscure little town of Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth, and people would say of Nazareth, what what good thing could come out of Nazareth? That's how low people thought of it. Jesus was not outwardly impressive in appearance. Nothing outwardly would make someone think, this must be the Messiah. Jesus came announcing that his kingdom was breaking in, and yet he acted differently from every other king. He did not rally together an army. Instead, He just had this kind of ragtag group of disciples, a strange collection of people who faithfully followed him. Except at the end, when he would go to the cross, the vast majority of them would scatter in fear. Jesus, the king, came not to be served, but he came to serve. What king comes to serve instead of having others serve him? And Jesus would not secure victory through a sword that he would take up. He said he would secure victory by laying down his life on a cross. Jesus, the perfect, sinless son of God, would intentionally go to the cross, that there on the cross he would pay for the sins of rebels like us. He would bear our pain, our shame, our guilt on the cross. He would be buried and raised on the third day, triumphant over Satan's sin and death, provide this free gift of salvation. For any, for all of us who would turn to Christ and receive this free gift. If you're not a Christian, we so want you to know this King Jesus. 
We're so glad you would give part of your Sunday to join us today. One of the things the Bible tells us is that, that functionally, all of us live under a king. All of us live under some form of a kingdom. Whether we call it that or not, we're looking to someone or something to sustain us, to make life matter, to at times rescue us. So our trust is in that person or that thing or that movement. But I wonder if that's true in your life and you're not a Christian. I wonder, does that thing that's king, the kingdom that you're a part of, does it have the ability to truly save you? Have you found it to be sufficient to save? Does your king love you? Does your king give grace to you or only demand more from you? Have you found lasting freedom and contentment under this king? Friends, the good news, the hope of Christianity is this king who is outside of us. And he does all of those things. And he gives them to us. He is the one who saves. He is the one who gives peace and contentment. He is the one who gives to us grace. And so we find life and hope now and for eternity as we trust in him by faith. We recognize there are so many ways the Christian view is, is strange and out of step. It might be very new to you. And so if you'd like to know more, we'd love to tell you more. Following the, in, into the service, I'll, I'll be at the door. We'll be happy to chat with you. If you came with a friend or a family member, I know they would love to tell you more. Or you can note it on the card as well. In just a few moments, we'll receive the offer. You can drop the card in the basket. For those of us who are Christians, we, we now live day to day similar to David in that we live under rulers who don't necessarily love God. In the workplace, on the campus, in our neighborhoods, we're, we're under authority and we're called to faithfully serve under them as David did. To respect and submit. To work hard and diligently and well to the glory of God. And as you do, you'll be salt and light in that place. That's part of God's good design in this darkened world. The light of Christ is displayed as God's people are scattered. Often serving under people who might even oppose Jesus. Yet we stay there, endure there, and glorify God there, serving faithfully. So friend, do you see the opportunity that God has given you on your campus or in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in this city? God has put us here in this city for this purpose. We're told in verse 18 that the Lord was with David. That was good news for David and also a key aspect of the good news of Advent, the coming of Jesus, is we refer to Jesus sometimes as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus has come near and dwelt among us. That's good news. No distant God, but a God who's come near and now by the Spirit dwells in us. Friends, that's the hope of the Christian. The Holy Spirit dwells in you today. He will tomorrow. And so, friend, he will sustain you. And he will keep you. So, so be comforted. 
The Spirit is with you and in you always. As you seek to trust in the Lord's timing, to trust that he will provide, he can give you peace. As you seek to cultivate your heart instead of just your outward appearance, he will empower you for that even this week. As you perhaps seek to work under those in authority over you who might be very far from God. And you wonder, can you faithfully serve there? He will give you the grace you need to glorify God, to be salt and light in that place. And our God is faithful, always faithful to us. So let's trust the king whom God has provided for us, for he, he alone is the king we truly need. But this morning is a means of response. There are several ways that we'll respond. In just a moment, we'll have a time of just silence to, to consider this king, to consider what our, our own hearts are like, to consider who we're trusting in.